We enter a pub. Sometime in the 1950s, somewhere in South East London, in the area called Kennington. Inside, it's very crowded. It's a Friday night, full of people letting off steam after a week's work. There's a piano playing in the corner. It's very smoky, the clinking of glasses, somebody singing along with the piano. And in one area, there's a group of people, at the centre of which is an old man. On either side, he's flanked by old acquaintances. But there are also some younger people there. Some of them are better dressed and are staring at him intently, listening keenly to any word that he might utter. The barman calls time, and the crowd begin to leave. We follow the old man as he wends his way through the streets of Kennington, until he comes to a house with a flight of steps down to a basement. We follow him down the steps and wait as he opens the door, steps inside. The flat is a cacophony of artists' materials, turpentine, paints, pencils, half-finished drawings, paintings stacked against walls. It also smells, it smells of cats. There are many cats here, and as the old man comes into the flat, they all stare at him strangely. He drops down into a chair, lights a cigarette, pours himself another drink. And as he drinks, closes his eyes and slips into a reverie. He's dreaming of a younger man sitting at a table. The younger man takes from his pocket a box and from the box he takes a pack of strange cards and lays them out on the table in front of him. He stares at them intently. Does he like what he sees? Who is he? Well, we're going to find out in this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Welcome, or welcome back, if this isn't the first time here. I'd like to invite you, before we begin, to join us at bureauoflostculture.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can support us in our wild endeavours, just as Tom, Stevie, Rob and Pip did again this month. Thank you so much, guys. We appreciate that. Now, as regular listeners know, there's nothing we like better at the Bureau of Lost Culture than a tale of lost culture. And what a tale we have today. It's a tale, actually, in some respects, of a lost person and of a lost object. The lost person is the London artist and mystic Austin Osmond Spare. And the object, the lost object, is, well, well, we'll hear about the lost object in due course. And the person who's going to tell us about both isn't lost, he's here in Soho with me, is the artist and curator Jonathan Allen, editor of the book Lost Envoy, about both person and objects and about all sorts of other stuff. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello. We last met um, in a cemetery, I think, weren't we? Isn't it something? Brompton Cemetery? I think it was, yes. Surrounded yeah. by uh, surrounded by spirits and ghouls, but in that amazing building. I can't remember, actually, whether it was that occasion or another one, um, when Alan Moore was there. I don't think it was on the same day, but it was maybe, maybe the, the day maybe after. The same, yeah, yeah. the same period. Yeah, because I just realised, actually, when reading um, your essay, of course, that um, Alan was 
quite become quite involved with Austin Spare uh, and sort of fictionalized him in Prometheus that I, I completely wasn't aware of. That. Yes, there's some great illustrations of him mm. sort of becoming this um, time traveling mm. savant across the ages. And he appears in Bug, which is why we invited him in part um, to contribute to the the book that we will talk about a bit later on yeah and also of course you know this connection with chaos magic i'm not even quite sure what that is but i mean there's <laughs> why don't we jump in and i'm going to deal you a set of cards as we're talking about the tower okay and um <clears throat> and, I, and i thought then we can just talk about each of those cards so the first card i'm going to deal you is a card and it's got a picture of you on it jonathan allen so who is jonathan allen um, well i'm a london-based artist writer um and sometimes Curator. I trained as a visual artist back in the late 1980s. Um, I've been exhibiting and writing, making lots of different kinds of exhibitions around my own practice, but also um, in the context of, I had a particular interest over the years in the, I suppose, the creative potential of archives and mm -hmm. museum collections, research activities that reanimate or reboot creative projects that were somehow overlooked mm. or, or missed or incomplete or misplaced somehow. Um, That's, which is a perfect um, subject for this Bureau of Lost Culture, obviously, because we, we love stories that are kind of lost or half-hidden or half-remembered. And um, this story, as we're going to find out, you know, is, is full of uh, that word lost, isn't it? But I don't know if you still are, but you were curator at the Magic Circle Museum. Sometime around... 15 years ago, I, um, following this interest in collections mm. and archives, but also picking up on what had been a long-term interest in the technology of illusion and spectacle, um, I started working closely with the Magic Circle Museum. I mean, recognizing that theatrical magic, or some have called it secular magic, uh, has kind of slipped through the cultural net um, to a large extent. Um, it's cultural history, particularly, uh, until recently. And that's an important distinction, isn't it? So you talk about theatrical magic, or conjuring, I suppose we might sort of say, which is, you know, doesn't claim to have any sort of mystical uh, aspects to it, uh, as distinct from magic, possibly with a K, which is very much claiming that, it, you know, you can change the world via various rituals or, you know, through divination and stuff like that. So your interest was in the former as something which has been maybe not taken so seriously as a art form, is it? Yeah, well, I think, it, it, I mean, partly it's just been more culturally invisible. I mean, that's right. partly because magicians have deliberately hidden that history. Right. Because magic as a theatrical form relies, for better or worse, on a degree of secrecy. In fact, magicians talk about h hiding the secrets of magic on behalf of their audiences. Hmm. Uh, rather than in some kind of battle of uh, sort of power over their audiences. The delight in witnessing a trick is in not understanding how it's done. And therefore, if you've got full knowledge of how it's done, you lose some of the entertainment of it, right? Yeah, that's partly. I mean, a lot of people, you know, engage with magic really, really wanting to know how it's done. Right. And, you know, the kind of curiosity around the mm. processes of mm. illusion and spectacle are increasingly important at the moment, mm. given that there are lots of um, I wouldn't call them magicians, they're probably confidence tricksters mm. in popular culture and political culture who, you know, use and draw on some of the methods that magicians use in a theatrical context. Mm. So um, being able to decipher what's going on is of great interest <laughs> to some. But just going back to your original point about the sort of this distinction between 
theatrical magic and magic with a K that derives from a sort of supernaturalist or, or other world and tradition. I, I don't really see the two in such stark contrast. I mean, if you if you look back through the history of secular magic, there's all sorts of people who were you know, practicing in the theatrical arts who were deeply interested in the esoteric right. um, dimensions of psychic experience and um in fact the you know the, the magic circle has a a thing called an, the occult committee that actually was set up in the i think it was in 1914 as part of the magic circle um to investigate um experiences or claims for supernatural processes and events that period was also full of lots of charlatans and lots of right um <clears throat> Uh, people who were sort of, I guess, opportunists around what was also a genuine exploration of psychological and psychic experiences that people were investigating and trying to form into the occult sciences at the time. So the, the idea of this kind of collision between the rational and the irrational isn't so clear. Okay, so listen, I'm going to deal you your second card, which is um, the magic circle. So for anybody who doesn't know what that means or has just maybe heard something about it vaguely what is it the magic circle is essentially a a kind of membership club for theatrical magicians um it was founded in london in uh 1905 um basically as a space where performers could get together away from their audiences um, and share ideas and perform to each other and yeah there's a it's a club room um fully equipped Theatre, very extensive library covering all aspects of the conjuring arts, an archive and an amazing museum comprised of theatrical props that are often left by magicians to the magic circle because obviously the props on <laughs> loose in the world contain technical secrets that technical magicians secrets, are sort of right. trying to yeah. um, you know trying to protect to some extent. Um, but also they you know, they they the museum traces a technological progression that's around illusion. My memory of it was that to become a member, obviously you had to be sort of practicing uh, theatrical magician, but also you had to kind of sign up to their sort of secrecy uh, rule to sort of swear not to reveal the secrets of the yes. either the circle or the tricks. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about I mean, magic's about um, generating experiences of as if of the impossible. A, a, a wonderful magic historian um, called and, and illusion designer called Jim Steimer um, describes the revelation of theatrical secrets in magic as a formula for disappointment, mm. which I think is quite a nice description. Very good, yeah, because there's always that thing about, you know, we want to know how something's done, and then when we find out, we always go, oh. Uh, for listeners, by the way, we are building towards the, the subjects of this episode. I'm going to deal, uh, Jonathan, another uh, card here quite appropriately and that is is a picture of a tarot deck now um jonathan i don't think you're a tarot reader yourself but you probably know a lot more about it than uh, most people so what is tarot tarot falls i suppose generally within the field of cartomancy cartomancy usually describes divination using playing cards the tarot cartomancy is um divination using cards to speculate on a particular experience or particular moment using a set of randomly chosen or laid out cards in spreads and tarot 
cards are probably the most celebrated, most well-known example of that. Um, but tarot actually didn't have a divinatory origin. It, it began um, the beginning of the Milanese court around the sort of 1450s. Um, and at that point, it was a card game. Cards that were part of that deck were a sort of um, portrait of the Visconti family who commissioned them, were a sort of allegory of life, um, all leading towards the the kind of celebration of Milan. So the major arcana are the sort of these 22 cards, right, that maybe people are more familiar with. And then the minor arcana is the 52-card full deck. It's actually 56. 56. Um, it, it, total, it totals um, 78 cards, uh, standard tarot deck. So it's 22 major arcana trumps, and the minor arcana is four suits of 14 cards each. I mean, it was full of all the humanist very, very rich humanist iconography of the period. It's got almost like the feeling of some alchemical grimoires as well. I guess it feels like that, but that may be because subsequently tarot has been um, read through the lens of its occultation later on um, in uh, during two main periods, really. I mean, the, 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 the recreational trip-taking aspects of the tarot were kind of... Um, had been forgotten by the time mm. in the the French occult revival when so it's theorists. effectively a power game, you know, with with some depth to it. Then become later becomes used for divination, for future telling, for reading uh, meaning into people's relationships, etc. Yeah, as this kind of conversation starter for work about the soul or psyche. Yeah, well, I mean, and the the next sort of period in which it undergoes this sort of sex transformation is in in London, mid to the end of the nineteenth century. Um, during the British Occult Revival. This is the origins of the, probably the most celebrated deck now, the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. The deck that most people, if they've seen tarot, will probably be familiar with. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Painted by Pamela Coleman, mm. Pixie Smith. And it's exactly during that period that Austin Spare, who we'll talk about in a moment, um, hand-painted the, the deck that, mm. in a strange twist of fate ended up in the magic circle museum which i'll tell you about yeah, that's perfect that's a perfect uh, segue into my next card and i'm going to put a card down and on it it's got a picture of the london artist um austin osmond spare people may be familiar with him um but for anybody who's not jonathan give us a quick bio of spare it's a big, it's a big complex story. <laughs> you can help me along on the way. Um, well, I, mean, I know a lot less about him than, than you do, but I've, you know, been fascinated by him myself. And one of the things is, is that he was, you know, like a working class Londoner, wasn't he? Born and bred in Clerkenwell, I think, was that right? And yeah, in Smithfield, Smithfield. Yeah, I mean, um, Peter Ackroyd um, has sort of described, tried to plot this um, tradition of co- London Cockney visionaries. Mm. Um, which includes, um, I think, Hogarth, Blake, Turner, Blake, yeah. exactly, Dickens, Dickens, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and um, Phil Baker, who wrote a wonderful biography of um, Spare in 2011, adds Austin Spare to this Cockney visionary tradition. Mm. Um, he was, Spare was a uh, an English artist born in. 1886 in London. He spent most of his life in London, where he died um, in poverty, essentially, in um, in 1956. He lived through 
two world wars, um, obviously, um, as well as massive shifts in right. art history. Um, into which he never seemed to fit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, Phil, Phil gives this great um, observation. He was an artist who had his career the wrong way around. He began as a controversial West End celebrity because he, he was fated as a young man, wasn't he? Uh, yes. You know, it was the next great thing. And went on to obscurity and poverty in a South London basement. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. I mean, from a, from a very early age, he was um, seen to be and was an incredibly gifted mm. draftsman, particularly drawing the human figure and it was that talent for drawing that was the source of that early celebrity his father submitted some of his drawings to the royal academy summer exhibition where they were accepted and um, at the time he was still a student at the royal college of art um my old school one he was very good friends and remained lifelong friends with the um suffragette organizes Sylvia Pankhurst. And I thought I'd just drop this in because I've got one spare thing in my collection, which is I've got an original cop copy of the Book of Pleasure. And uh, it's got a nameplate in it for Una Trubridge and Ratcliffe Hall, who Una Trubridge was also in his year at the Royal College of Art. So I suspect um, he probably gave That's it to her as a, as a present, yeah, as a gift, yeah. Ah. Uh, Una Trubridge and Ratcliffe Hall, sort of two famous lesbians and yeah. authors and artists yeah he was fated he, he, because he was this extraordinary skill of 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 drawing and he became west end celebrity the darling of mayfair he called darling him, of mayfair right yeah yeah I mean, he was yeah. he was a attractive young flamboyant mm. highly talented somewhat mm. controversial controversial figure. the other important thing about him during that period is that he was negotiating and thinking through and claiming that other worldly forces mm. behind the production of his work or somehow kind of involved in the production of his work and i think that's why when spare gets talked about there's always this parallel discussion around his virtuosity as a draftsman and his life and activity as an occultist um, i mean i prefer the term Mystic. So um, he does share something a century or so later with Blake, this artist mystic, also Londoner, you know, Cockney visionary, as you said earlier. And stylistically, you know, maybe with Aubrey Beardsley and even people like Mervyn Peake later, who's this, this an interesting parallel because Peake also produced an awful lot of work and a lot of, had to produce a lot of commercial work, you know, in, yeah. in addition, and made his own books as well. Yeah. And part of this fascination with Spare, from a, for a lot of people, I think, is is the occult aspect. It appeared early, you know, this these claims that he made about the inspiration for his, or, you know, his muse, as it were. And he did kind of live it, didn't he, all the way through? He lived both as a sort of working artist and also a mystic, right? After this sort of early period of celebrity, he he he's a bit something of an entrepreneur, actually. He publishes two high-quality folio books of his own work. But then the war happens, damaged and wrong-footed many, mm. many artists during the period. Um, Spare became a war artist. He was drafted into the medical corps. There's a a really terrifying large pastel drawing in the Imperial War Museum of a of a gassed soldier right. sort of trying to be rescued by a, mm. a medic. That's where most of the institutionally held works of spare still are in the combination of the Imperial War Museum and the Welcome Collection mm. because of the medical aspect mm. of the work. After the war, he, I think he didn't have the... Um, desire or the education in fact to re-enter into the cosmopolitan london art scene 
Phil has this wonderful term, um, the, the hidden injuries of class caught up with him. He returned back to his, back south of the river, essentially, to his working class roots. And he entered into a sort of world of exploration right. of his own psyche. And this is where this, the real kind of engine room of his occult practice, I think, thrives. Um, but at the same time, he's drawing local personality local working class people and um, some sex workers and exactly. and also yeah. teaching right as well i mean like yeah. mervyn peak he, he you know he had to sort of make a make a living didn't he and uh, holding these sort of exhibitions in his own flat in his kitchen yeah, and exactly. just inviting people around and selling his works quite cheaply and the power of the work i mean the drawing mm. is just mm. exceptional throughout this period i mean he yeah. really could draw this this guy yeah. and, and i think also in terms of kennington you know there's something really significant because he was drawing locals he had he had, he had some favorite characters didn't he that he would draw um so he does really bed him as a london artist and i was just wondering and we're not really here to delve that deeply into it but as well as those working class wounds as it were you know the your background coming up and swallowing you um was there also a sense that his style like, and also the occult stuff was just became unfashionable in terms of the m modern art movement? You know, what was considered to be the most relevant modern art in the 20s and 30s? And, and I just wonder also whether his occult activities were regarded with a bit of embarrassment by the, by the art establishment. He kind of fell in between the mm. art historical movements that he might have been associated with, the figurative drawing in his practice. Obviously, that was out of kilter with the the main driving forces of 20th century modernism. And um, although certain aspects of modernism were projected onto him from outside, so in the in the 30s it was described as you know the the London father of surrealism. Right. Okay. That's... A celebrated headline: the father yeah. of surrealism. He's a Cockney. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I mean, and of course, and if he'd been around later, like say in the late 50s and 60s you know with the sort of blossoming of psychedelia and stuff he probably would have been the toast of the town again wouldn't he yes you know exactly but yeah. by then he he'd become a bit of a human interest story mm. you know a starving artist mm. in the cellar a couple of his friends kept his name mm. in the press right. um, in order to you know so he didn't vanish completely but mm. um, but it was at that point that the sort of next iteration of his life begins because through that um, publicity, Steffi Grant, Kenneth Grant, sort of inheriting the um, Alastair Crowleyan tradition um, that was sort of a continuous magical tradition through from the last century, went and found him in his cellar. I think it was in Windrow in Brixton. Recovered his spirits, I think, as much as anything, right. as well as you know, spotting his work and bringing it to attention. Do you think he was feeling quite defeated by that point then? From all appearances, he was very active mm. and living his self-contained mm. life but talking to his cat but there's some photographs from that period where mm. you know there's more cats in the picture <laughs> than than paintings <laughs> and um, they claimed they, they were his familiars didn't he sort of like in a, in a warlock type way encouraged by the grants mm. yeah they and, wanted him to be a mystic didn't they more so yeah and, and i think spare played, up, played to up to that. it i mean it's very interesting that period for us um looking at the tarot deck that we're going to mm. talk about because um he commits to paper some very interesting thoughts on cartomancy and card reading that actually he hadn't left any evidence right. of earlier in his life. And for anybody who hasn't seen um, Spare's work, check it out online. It is extraordinary. Drawings, paintings, portraits, also these books, you know, that he made with his own writings and particular artifact 
which we're going to talk about. I'm going to deal you your, uh, your next card um, here, Jonathan, because I'd like you to tell the story of the Austin Spare Tarot deck and really because how you found it. This is a story of lost culture, really, isn't it? Yeah. This is a sidebar. It's from a piece called His Own Arcana, Austin Osmond Spare and the Borders of Tarot by Phil Baker, published in the collection Lost Envoy. Who doth know what his own subconscious contains? Still less, his own arcana, said Austin Spare. Cards were deeply embedded in Austin Spare's personal mythology. He claimed an old witch called Patterson had initiated him into their mysteries when he was a child. Along with their ability to exteriorise thought forms, so that another person could see them taking shape in a corner of the room, and her knack of changing herself from an old hag into a beautiful woman, she taught him to read the cards, and foretold his own mixed fortunes. She told me all the major events of my life, he said. More than that, according to Spare, whenever he did a card reading for anyone, it left him so drained that afterwards he wanted to lie down and sleep. But the old lady could tell hundreds without getting tired. Personally, I really owe the thanks for, for sending me off in the right direction is Ben Roberts, who was a curator at Camden Arts Centre. At the end of 2012, he invited me to contribute to a series of public events associated with the obsessive uh, Swiss collector Dieter Rott. Ben wanted me to just talk about my relationship to the collections of the Magic Circle Museum and how they came about. And I had to dig down into the collection and in doing that I just stumbled across a reference in the old accession notes of one of the curators from the 1920s of Arthur Ivy to a 79 card tarot deck hand-painted in 1910 by the English artist Austin Osmond Speck. That's a sort of classic treasure hunter moment isn't it? I mean you're an archivist you're an artist yourself right and then you just read this reference does it still exist where is it and yes yeah how did that feel yeah i, I mean i can picture the moment as i'm talking to you mm. funnily enough i'd been looking at our playing card collection a couple of months before just because it's one of the aspects of the collection that has been long archived it's not on display it was in a box that said for sale although it wasn't actually going to be sold <laughs> but it was it was in, in deep storage, essentially. But th what that meant was I knew exactly where it was. So um, within 10 minutes, I, I had it in my hands. Wow. So hold on. So you, you read this reference to it, which you must have sort of hair standing on end sort of type thing. You walked into the archive knowing it's got to be in that box. Yeah, they opened, opened a, a locked cupboard. It was going to be in one of three boxes. It was in the first one that I picked. Must Number 172 right. in the, the catalogue. Um, it must have been a moment. It was. And I should say my recognition of the name Spare you know, came from past knowledge of his work, but also through Phil Baker's book right. that had just been published. So he was in my mind and another pot of Sparean mm. brew had obviously mm. been stirred somehow by that. I was immediately sensitive to, you know, the potential of this object and then i just spent a exciting couple of hours <laughs> just there was nobody in the museum for that right. whole evening i was there completely on my own i had that sensation of looking over my shoulder is mm. there somebody 
here with me, you know, mm. and uh, probably hadn't been opened at it or, or been laid out for decades, if, if ever, right? I later did the research to follow the provenance of the object inside the magic circle. It had been in the collection about 70 years by the time I found it. Um, it had been displayed in the Magic Circle Museum um, in sometime in the 50s. Um, I mean, it's fascinating the possibility that it was displayed in spare storage. I mean, we have no idea, right. but it could could potentially have seen the deck. Mostly was held in a in an album for particularly special parts of the collection. Um, that I should say that the, the reason the Magic Circle has a playing card collection is so magicians wouldn't be surprised if handed a deck of cards that had unfamiliar imagery on right. it and and handled in a particular way. So the idea was to have a collection of all existing playing cards, which is a hopelessly mm. endless task. So magicians could come and experiment with them and right. play with them. But this deck that you found is the deck that he made. It's not like it's a kind of copy or that he made multiple copies of. Yeah, 79 mm. hand-painted original artworks by Spare, which is what makes it so... Extraordinary. 79 miniature paintings, basically. I mean, just to go back to that moment when you started to spread it out or deal it out, that must have been so exciting. Right? It was immediately obvious that there was something different about it mm. in terms of the design. It's radio, so we have to describe what it might look like as far as possible. Not all 79, but I mean... I'm... I mean, there's many, many things that can be said about this incredible mm. object. I mean, it's essentially a relic of the British Occult Revival, this deck. Um, right. Curator at the Magic Circle accessioned it as produced in 1910 in our following research we we're pretty sure that that was too late we think it was produced in 1906 around 1906 1905 1906 which would mean that it would predate the most famous tarot deck predates the right away smith deck the reason we think that to do with the iconography in the deck that belongs to a much earlier period of spare's practice than 1910. By 1910, he's moved on considerably. This is a sidebar. It's from a piece called Mind to Mind and How by a sorcerer, published in the book Lost Envoy. It's Austin Osman Spare in a piece he wrote for the London Mystery Magazine. Science has to wait its rare artist to make an audacious guess for enlightenment or mutation. For me, the inexplicable of beauty, the undivulged of things gives them their enchantment, not their known meanings. From the above evolves a suggestion that the mind knows all, that thought which permeates all things is the conveyor and the nexus, and that we become rapport and evocative by some cryptic symbolism which we must originate. Here's a clue. How do two fraudulent telepathists convey messages to each other? By a leisure the name, some subtle secret code. And the means of psychic correspondence, telepathy, premonition, prediction, is by a parallel. Merely to establish telepathy between two people, by known things, means little outside of the proof. So we extend to the unknown, by prediction, and by a simple form, Anyone may practice and prove for himself the degree of success must necessarily relate to one's aptitude and ability. First, obtain a book on fortune-telling by playing cards. 
this will give you the general idea towards the making of a far better pack for your purpose. Then procure a pack of ordinary playing cards, mark them top and bottom. Do not rely on the book too much, only for general direction and method, all such being the traditional remnants of a lost art. You must evolve your own meanings, symbols and methods. Deck as I laid it out, did I lay it out on the floor? No, I think I laid it out on the top of one of the vitrines because I thought mm. oh, the carpet might be a bit grubby. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But the, the first thing to notice about it is it, it has a very strange architecture. The major arcana is our tarot trumps, but the minor arcana is a deck of essentially a deck of hand-drawn playing cards it's a normal french suit hearts diamonds clubs suede and he's sort of fused them together in a curious hybrid that is very unusual and i think unprecedented as far as i can work out it hybridizes the two traditions of cartomancy mm. that were concurrent at the time but during that period the esoteric tarot was largely the, the domain of an educated, investigative elite, Order of the Golden Door. Whereas playing card cartomancy was a working to middle class pastime yeah. to some yeah, extent. Might do it in um, a pub or something, right? Exactly. Yeah, a polar game, yeah. yeah. I mean, some people... And it's quite interesting in his case that he did bring them together and fuse them in that way because, of course, he was also a fusion of that himself, wasn't he? Hanging out briefly with Crowley and the the Golden Dawn, and then also working this working class artisan type as well, yeah, wasn't he? So exactly. he, might, he might have played those kind of games in the pub or something in Kennington. So yeah. you also talk about the fact that very unusually, whereas most decks the cards are all individual, in his deck, if you lay cards next to each other, they overlap from one to another. Is that right? Yeah. Well, this is the the thing that jumped out to me immediately mm. and got me very excited when I was looking at them mm. straight away. Um, we're still puzzling out the kind of motives mm. behind this, and um, I guess we'll never really know why, but um, if you lay very many of the cards next to each other, either as pairs or as, as larger groups, Spare drew and wrote across the borders in between the cards. So it's information half on one card and half mm. on another card, so mm. they link together and... and form an image or uh, or form a word often in a little beautifully drawn band or all but they don't fit together like a puzzle it's not mm, like mm. you could sit down and mm. the whole thing join together it's much more fragmented mm. and mm. chaotic than that um so when some marginal devices link together and form images other images that are on that same border go nowhere and form dead ends so. so when you discovered it so you know you've had this evening on your own at the magic circle a quite magical evening by the sounds of it of course it's a discovery which is going to be fascinating to anybody who's interested in austin osmond spare but also interested in the history of the magic circle and also i guess people tar tarot aficionados you know or, or the occult revival interests as well it's got this kind of multiple uh, attraction, doesn't it, to various people? So, what happened? I mean, what did you, you've just found it, what do you do next? Well, I should add another community to that, which is art historians, because it's, oh, it's obviously a, a, you know, a very early example of combinatoric artwork. Mm. I mean, it's got the feel of a sort of surrealist, exquisite cadaver game. I always think if Calvino had seen it, he'd have been fascinated by it. Calvino famously, you know, wrote 
fiction using tarot cards as right. narrative inspiration, but actually laying these cards together where images are physically produced as they're laid down alongside one another, I think he'd found that extremely interesting. Mm. What happened next for you? So you've discovered it, and then you've got to tell the world about it in some way, right? Um, well, a very interested world. and Yeah, I mean, the, I mean that's where a uh, sort of you know, wonderful bit of good fortune came in, in that because of contact with Phil Baker through his biography, and actually I'd known the publisher of that book, Strange Attractive Press. I'd known Mark Pilkington, its director and founder, for many years. You know, I knew immediately I was going to show it to Mark mm. because it seemed a very obvious object around which a publication could revolve. You had to explain it somewhat to the Magic Circle, didn't you? I mean, it's it's an object that was in their archive, not lost, but forgotten. Maybe they wouldn't understand at first the importance or significance of it in a wider sense to you know all these communities that we talked about right there, there was also an issue around its association with occult thinking and the you know slightly undeveloped sense of those cultural histories you know the sort of magic mm. versus magic mm. you know that, that kind of thinking doesn't tend to explore the shared imagination between both worlds mm. um the sense of seeking inquiry that both communities mm. explore and share. And, and, and so I, I guess in some ways I was a little bit protective mm. over it. I mean, I, firstly, I needed to check the deck wasn't known about. did a bit of Googling straight away and you know, there was nothing significant written about. It took me about three weeks to realize it was a completely unknown work. And by then I'd also traced how it had got into the magic circle mm. Which was the book of pleasure that we talked about briefly earlier on. Spare's main third publication in about 1910. It considered his sort of theoretical, magical masterpieces, early treaties. In fact, some of his sort of most original, oddest ideas, I think, are in that. But the author of the Ford of that book, artist and writer Ernest Collins, and it turned out that the person who had gifted the deck in 1944 was called Herbert J. Collings, who was a former founding member of the Magic Circle and twice its president, and a younger brother okay. by a year of Ernest Collings. And Ernest Collings had known Spare from a very early age, so it's very likely that Herbert J. Collings also knew Spare. It's almost certainly the conduit through which the deck came to the magic circle maybe Herbert J. Collins says that Spare gave him the deck it, always, it is all lost in time and as you say we'll never know but he wrote about cartomancy later do you think that he made these cards as an artistic experiment or do you think that he actually used them um, to, in terms of doing readings for any occult purpose or I tend to read the, the deck as a kind of training deck when you look at the cards there there's a lot of writing on them experiments within the deck itself sort of ideas that he's trying out that he then abandons the feeling is of a assemblage of learning and exploration around both the esoteric tarot and the long history and lore of playing card cartomancy all being notated mm. together in this kind of um experimental portable studio mm. in miniature that he mm. can 
carry around with him mm. and hold with him and add to mm. and some of the figures on the um, court cards of the minor arcana really look like they're drawn from life possibly friends maybe models right. and you've got your facsimile set here can I have a quick look whilst you're <laughs> rooting it out i'll just tell a little bit the next part of the story because as a consequence to you discovering it and the importance of it you know which is recognized by other people too then you wrote the book lost envoy uh, jonathan's just passed me his facsimile sets i should just say i should just say something about this because it's it's a rather uh, kind of rough and ready Mm. object the reason i i produced this was um, as soon as i started experimenting with the marginal motifs the technology at the edges of the cards it was obvious that in order to examine this object fully you you had to have a kind of haptic contact with it haptic means by hand by physical contact by hand through handling and in i suppose in a way thinking about it thought about it that way i i I needed to carry it around in the way that spare must have done right you know he you know we don't know when he passed it on to Mm. one of the collings Mm. brothers but there's a good chance that he you know carried around with him in Southwark for mm. a good number of years doing right. readings, doing readings yeah. uh, as he's yeah. learning about the yeah. art himself and um, you know, drawing across the boundaries and, and so forth. And It's a lovely thing. I mean, you're absolutely right because the the little heads, the portraits that are on there, they actually do look like they're from life. I mean, there's ghosts and strange creatures wobbling around too, but the, the, the portraits have this feeling of kind of verite about them. I mean, and it's a delightful thing. And I think in a way, as we're running out of time, um, that is a perfect time to deal with you. The final card, um, Jonathan, which is that Lost Envoy, the book, came out and it sold out very quickly. Actually, the editor of the book, Lost Envoy, obviously I initiated the project, um, but my expertise around Spare was, you know, had, had its limits, particularly around Spare's relationship to cartomancy. So the book is a, a collation of um, contributions from... Um, wide range of authors including two two spare scholars phil baker who we've been talking about a lot gavin semple who had actually written the, the only previous um treatment of spare's relationship to cartomancy in the in the 90s but obviously didn't include the deck because he mm-hmm. didn't know about it and um and um helen farley who is a cultural historian who sort of set the deck in a cultural history of tarot and there's a number of existing texts one from magic circle uh, curator arthur ivy 200 words about the deck in 1968 spares own writing on cartomancy in the 1950s which shines a light back on the deck in very interesting ways uh, we invited the writer sally o'reilly to produce a text of uh, speculative fiction um, around an encounter she came up with between Austin Spare and Sylvia Pankhurst were in which the deck features. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, yeah. And then a wonderful um, piece by Alan Moore where he wonderfully asks Alistair Crowley's deck what the future provenance and the future of Austin Spare's deck is. So he's asking one tarot deck about the future of another tarot deck. Classic Alan Moore there. Yeah, Love and, it. And, <clears> and <throat> illustrated by <throat> Kevin O'Neill as well. That's yeah. the other. The new edition is that plus more plus the other information that you found out since and various other things and of course the very special thing about it is that in addition to the book there is 
a facsimile reproduction of the deck itself. And that um, has proved an incredible technical challenge because specifically of these marginal details of the card, which anybody who knows anything about printing will know the clearances and the margins at the edges of printed material are very tricky to manage um, at that kind of detail. And given that there's individual words and mm. details of images right on the borders of the cards, it's been a real challenge. But we, we're, we, think we're, we think we're on top of that. Both of those projects together ended up being a, a significant financial um, challenge. So we launched a Kickstarter campaign about three weeks ago now. Which is already, I can tell you, it's already um, thriving. And I'm just going to encourage people, if you're, interested, if you're a spare fan and didn't know about this already, or you've been intrigued by what you've heard today, I'll put a link to the Kickstarter and to uh, Jonathan's work in the show notes, um, because it is going to be a little cultural treasure, I think, and... Um, are you actually there? Are you over the, the Kickstarter ridge into it's definitely happening? I think probably four-fifths of the way there mm. now. Okay. So much kind of interest and love for the, you know, the project, isn't there, already, yeah. and for him and stuff, yeah. and what you've already uncovered. And, and it's yeah. such an amazing story, um, Jonathan. And I think also you mentioned earlier, which I was very pleased to hear, that the Magic Circle have got no intention to sell this thing. Which <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it, it, that may change, but I, I think as... As the Magic Circle recognise the treasure in its midst, and and the fact that you know it brings a a, a very different range of um, visitors into the building, and um, and the Magic Circle Museum itself is is sort of moving into a, a slightly different relationship mm. with its audiences anyway, sure. and so um, uh, yeah, I think I, I think. I think it would be a mistake to sell it, mm. um, and I, I don't think there's any intention to sell it. Mm. Um, well, let's hope if they ever need to or decide to that it actually goes into the V&A or something, you know, or some other um, public institution rather than getting snappled up by one of the very eager yeah. collectors who include some famous people like Jimmy Page and stuff, don't they? I mean, Spares still... <laughs> Despite the you know recent interest in his work mm. and the, certainly the recent market interest in his mm. work, has still sort of slipped the net of mm. critical acknowledgement mm. by the British art institution. I mean, there's there's a number of reasons for that, mm. um, but I think that's only a matter of time, simply right. because of the power of the work. Mm. I mean, I, I think yeah, if you you know you've only got to stand in front of a you know a, a really strong spare drawing you know they they've got the authority on the on the surface of sure of early Lucian Freud and, and if fact, that happens they will explode for sure. so um Jonathan thank you very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about this wonderful piece of lost or semi-forgotten half-remembered culture we're looking forward to the new edition of Lost Envoy and this wonderful reproduction of the work so thanks a lot thank you Thanks to Jonathan for that brief introduction to Austin Osmond Spare and his wonderful tarot deck. Thanks to Jonathan also for rediscovering it and researching it and bringing it back into the light. You know, as much as I do, there's nothing better, is there, than lost treasure, treasure seekers. And, of course, here at the Bureau of Lost Culture, there's nothing we like better than a tale of lost culture, lost arcana, lost esoterica. 
Austin Spur is a fascinating character for many, many reasons. Particularly, I would say, because of his work. It's beautiful. If you're not familiar with it, do check it out. I urge you also to check out this Kickstarter campaign to bring his tarot deck back in the reproduced form into the world. It was, it's a wonderful thought to think of it being out there and people using it to tell their own futures, to divine their own meanings or those of others. As well as anything else, it's a very strange and beautiful object as you'll see if you check out the campaign. I'll put a note to that, of course, in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I hope that your future holds many wonderful and meaningful things. In our future, we'll be back with another guest to hear more stories from the other side. Thanks for listening. Leave us a review somewhere. Tell a countercultural friend. Write to us and let us know who you'd like to hear about at the Bureau of Us Culture or join us in any other way that you'd like. I think we should finish with a tune. Here is the artist, The Real Tuesday World, with another track from their last future album, Junk Shop Melodies. This is called The Return of the Flea. See you next time.